1: Hi, I'm Helen.
3: And I'm Stephen. And
1: welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Welcome to what hopefully sounds like a much cooler New Statesman podcast, because great update from the pod catacomb. After um, months of you, uh, Stephen, having to kind of manspread uncomfortably around a really horribly shaped table, we've now got a circular table. Yeah. So I can gaze at you with my beady eyes throughout um, everything that you're saying. I want to start by talking about Prime Minister's questions. And we'll move on to uh, our main topic. But I just want to have a moment.
3: A moment Uh, to everyone. Oh, actually, I can't remember the tune to Bow Down, but if I could, I would sing it about Emily Thornberry.
1: Yeah, so um, David Lidington, who's leader of the house, stood in for Theresa May because she's um, off in the Gulf at a gathering with even more men than she's used to when she goes to Tory party receptions. But uh, that meant that um, Jeremy Corbyn also got a week off, Emily Thornberry um, stood in, and I mean, David Liddington did okay. Let's first of all give some mild props to David Liddington, right, who had a very sticky hand to play and mostly kept his call cool really well. But Emily Thornberry did all six questions to go, so are we staying in the customs union? And he'd go like, whoa, oh, you don't accept the referendum results, you go, yeah we do, are we staying in the customs union though? I just thought it was a really effective performance.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a route one PMQ's performance, but obviously there's a reason why that is the first route. David Liddington had this problem that, as as you pointed out, Raphael Bear said on Twitter, like, he hasn't been told what he thinks about the customs union by the Prime Minister. Um, he kind of got a bit ratty, and she definitely went, I think one of the things I would like to talk about is the fact that most of the uh, parliamentary oh, lobby is it going to be the
1: shade throwing section?
3: Is surprised by the fact that an eminent barrister who has employed Damien McBride, who you know did some fairly dodgy things, but you know a key player in dodgy one things. of the most you know the, the most prolonged and successful period of non-conservative government in in British history since the 18th century. People are surprised that she did PMQs well.
1: Yeah, I think there's a really interesting thing about her when she was doing defence is that she said, well, actually, I think there's a good argument to be made against Trident because why are we putting all this money into a nuclear deterrent when we should be putting much more money into cyber defence? And everyone's like, "Pop, pop, 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 And but now then, Donald
3: Trump is president. <laughs> yeah, and then
1: obviously the whole year has been dominated by, hey, where are all these mysterious WikiLeaks dumps that, you know, only incriminate the person that the Russians don't want in the White House? I think there's, there's big worries for Angela Merkel in Germany that she might be subject took the same kind of thing, you know. And, and yeah, you've
3: got to hope she's got two-step two verification two <laughs> turned on.
1: Yeah, I really hope that she hasn't just been using like 12345 password as her password because that, she's lost the election at that point. Yeah, you know, what an incredibly effective destabilizing tactic selective leaking, selective hacking is. Yeah. Um, so she was absolutely right on that. And I agree with you. In the safe space of the podcast, we can say that I just think she reminds middle-class men of when their wife asks them to empty the dishwasher. Uh, and the people who write about politics, that group is heavily overrepresented there.
3: Yeah, I think that is exactly it. And I think I also think there's, there is a wider issue than that, and we've touched on it before. But I think one of the reasons why conservatives have produced two uh, female prime ministers and Labour have produced none is there is an idea of conservative womanhood. Uh, it is very limited, right? It's you know it, it's like doing a not very good Elizabeth the first impression. But if you can ride that impression. To the top of the party, then that works for you, right? That is an acceptable model.
1: Yeah, it's kind of almost like Virgin Queen mixed with a slight overtone of kind of sadomasochism, right? Yeah. You know, you see all this sort of stuff about Thatcher. You see the thing about her handbagging men, and, sort of, and that you kind of see the same tropes used about Theresa May. You know, that she's, you know, she's got these icy glances. You know, she really puts people in their place. So it's a kind of this sort of cold, hard power sort of idea. But you're right; there is no, yeah. I think, actually something that. Um, when I was doing my motherhood thing, actually, one of the senior Labour MPs said to me, you know, is that there's no model of what a big beast is when you're a woman, right? You're used to talking in Labour about big beasts. Well, yeah. actually, that's really kind of alpha-dominant men.
3: Yeah. Um, and you
1: can't be a lady beast.
3: Yeah. And I think the the other thing that I find deeply maddening in the Corbyn era is you'll have a situation where Diane Abbott or Emily Thornbury will go on television and they will give a kind of eloquent and fairly well-expressed version of the leadership's policy right
0: mm.
3: now in some cases i think the leadership's policy is fairly bonkers and incoherent but but people don't go oh that was bonkers and incoherent from john mcdonald they go oh, labor are never going to win with that policy whereas mm. diane comes up and sums up what Labour's position on something is and everyone's just like, oh rogue performance Oh, who's this lunatic woman and why she wandered onto my tv set and you see this with emily thornbury as well like you know, you can have an, an argument about whether or not people are going to elect a party which is anti-Trident, but her argument for it, so for being opposed to it, is very good and it's expressed in a very eloquent way, it's just people don't like it when it comes from a posh lady.
1: I, I do think there is a, just a general problem of, of female authority, and you're right, I think that the Tories have kind of solved that by this sort of Gloriana way of, of doing it, which is a kind of... You say you you implicitly make the argument that you're an exceptional you know I have not the heart of a weak and feeble woman I have the yeah. stomach of a king or whatever I've got that I've got my organs confused in that but it's basically you're not arguing that all women are brilliant you're arguing that you are exceptional uh, and I think that's less inherently destabilizing than saying yeah I think a woman should be you know our leader and actually we should have loads of women in the cabinet too which is kind of like oh <laughs> let's get, not get crazy with this tokenism. I thought it was a really accomplished performance. And I also thought, you know, actually it was a really revealing performance because it reveals that the government won't tell us what it wants from its deal and whether or not you think it's reasonable to do that. That is a kind of useful fact to know. Mm. Um, I think they're in real trouble because I think everyone is getting a bit angsty about not having had any details, about even about kind of broad priorities, right? And that's why they had to accept Labour's amendment saying that they would lay out more details. I mean, I think those details when they're forthcoming will probably still not satisfy everybody,
3: And this is a big example of hindsight being twenty twenty because I was not saying, oh, Keir Starmer should have asked for a white paper, not a plan, before he did it. The difficulty with asking for a plan is whether or not it means that the government can get away with coming out with a very banal set of principles and going, oh, here's our plan. We want the best deal for Britain. Yeah. Oh, that's our plan, in heavy inverted commas. But I think you're right in that if she had had an Article 50 vote first week in the job, Yeah, it would have passed. If it hadn't passed, it would have been because it had gotten into difficulties in the Lords. They'd have then been able to dismember the anti-conservative majority over there, which they hate anyway. It's win-win. Whereas by having this pointless ongoing battle... I mean, I have spoken to no lawyer, right, regardless of how they felt about the referendum, who privately thinks that the government is going to get anything other than a hiding in the Supreme Court, because Mm. they're like, well, they've got a strong moral case... However, in terms of the actual workings of the law, Article 50 will destroy a lot of rights, so obviously it's reserved to the legislature, not the executive.
1: It's also, to me, feels like a very weird battle to pick, because I I don't see any evidence that there isn't a majority for passing a simple Article 50 bill in the Commons, right? So what you're basically doing is having this massive argument about how you hate all judges, trying to destroy the independence of the courts because you don't like what they're saying, only to end up with the result that you wanted in the end anyway.
3: Yeah, and obviously we don't know what the judgment will be, but... There is a risk to the government, and they end up with a verdict which sharply limits prerogative power more than they would like e d is is arguing that you can basically assume that unless Parliament has explicitly said something is not a prerogative power, it is, so he's effectively arguing from the sound of silence. I'm sorry, I don't know why I did that, but
1: um it's beautiful. that's like, like the God of the gaps theory, yeah. isn't it that actually your kind of at rationale for God is all the things you can't explain are God. But yeah. in his case, all the things you can't explain are Brexit.
3: Yeah, which is arguable. However, that would give the executive quite a lot of power. I don't think they're going to get that. But their risk is is if the Supreme Court comes back and goes, not only are you not getting that, but we've actually, we think from this case, X, Y, and Z. And then that opens up a whole suite of possible claims people can make about overweening executive power. It's just a really odd uh, battle to fought.
1: Yeah, when you kind of don't need to. I am baffled by their approach. And I think it does go back to that conversation that we've been having all year actually about whether or not Theresa May is good or lucky. Um and I think on the evidence so far that she's still it's still an open question because she's still being extremely lucky. She's still got an opposition that are trailing her by, what is it, 13, 14 points on average?
3: settled down to kind of 7 to 10 now.
1: Yeah, (laughs) a mere 7 to 10. But, uh, you know, who are also having their own total internal wrangle over Europe, given that they're fighting off UKIP in one set of seats and Lib Dems in another set of seats. And one day they might dream of having a seat, more than one seat, in Scotland again. She has certainly been incredibly lucky with that. But... Again, the problem is you can only kind of play the tune of Labour don't have an answer so much. No one expects Labour to have an answer. That's the problem. If you're, again, it's the sort of thing of being priced in. If if it's priced in that Labour are weak and they're not going to be the government, then unfortunately people are going to expect you to have the answer. Yeah, And they kind of don't. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash s-r-s-l-y.
3: And now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George.
0: So two years ago, MPs felt the electoral ground shift beneath them as a series of polls showed the SNP surging on the back of the independence referendum. And of course, they went on to win 56 of the 59 Scottish seats, Uh, 40 Labour MPs, 10 Liberal Democrats were swept away. And after the Richmond by-election, Labour and Tory MPs are worried that the ground is once more moving. So we saw the Lib Dems take that seat by turning it into a referendum on Brexit and ousting the pro leave Zach Goldsmith. Uh, Tory MPs are worried that they could do the same in other seats with large uh, remain, uh, remain voters. And Labour, are, are after the election of, of Paul Nuttall, who's made it has a, his stated ambition to replace Labour as the party of opposition, so uh, no, no, small, no small task, are worried that UKIP could take seats and votes of them Um, by similarly running um, on a a Brexit platform, by by, um, turning themselves into the party of leave.
3: It's particularly troubling for Labour in the the Conservative leadership has basically made a bid to be the main party of leave. Uh, UKIP, obviously, are trying to have a Brexit betrayal myth, but no-one is really certain what it is that Labour should do. Where is the leadership on the Brexit issue at the moment?
0: Yes, so in favour of a soft Brexit, essentially. Uh, you saw Emily Thornberry at, at PMQs reveal that Labour's now committed to customs union membership. They will be tabling amendments on the single market when any Brexit-related Brexit, legislate, Brexit related legislation comes forward. Um, but you're right that their position isn't clear to the the public at large. Um, of course, what distinguishes uh, Labour from the other parties is they are the opposition. They, they are... The only party that could plausibly form a form a government in in the near future. UKIP have one MP, the Lib Dems have eight MPs, uh, but with the party so divided um, and with Jeremy Corbyn having such poor personal ratings, it's it's hard for Labour to offer themselves as, as an alternative government. So I think that's that's the problem for them, and it's also there are also structural factors that play here. That this is a less tribal, less class-based era. People don't define themselves by their work anymore. They often define themselves more by their identity. That helps parties like the Lib Dems and UKIP um, as opposed to, to Labour. And there is a gnawing sense that Labour MPs have, that they are the party of the past rather than the party of the future. Trade union membership, public sector workforce, both far smaller than they were in the past. And if you look across Europe, Everywhere centre-left, social-democratic parties are in structural decline, not just cyclical decline. It's not just the case of a few bad election results. They are polling terribly everywhere. Um, In terms of that, Grim
3: Vista, obviously the leadership is not social-democratic, and they wouldn't really self-describe in that way. They were feeling much chirpier after the Trump result in terms of what they felt it showed about the 2020 election. Is that still the case, or has that op- uh, optimism dissipated uh, slightly?
0: Yes, it has, it has dissipated, and uh, that's inevitable because the, the polls have been, as, as Corbyn ally John Trickett told a recent meeting at the NEC, Dyer, um, and he said that at the next election, Labour would have to defend some seats. It wouldn't just be able to, uh, to put its resources into, into targeting uh, gains from, from the Conservatives and others. I think the hope is that the Tories will still come unstuck over Brexit, that actually, whether you're for remain or or for leave, uh, that's less important than simply the government doing a bad job, the economy going badly. Labour say, look, we cannot simply stand up for the 48% or the 52%. We have to try and speak to everyone. We want to talk about... Uh, the kind of country we want to see, the reforms we want to make. We'll focus on the economy, on jobs, on, on living standards, uh, which is in many ways an echo of what Ed Miliband said in in 2015. And of course, there we saw uh, Labour uh, marginalise Scotland by the SNP and suffer uh, losses to, to UKIP as well. They didn't lose any seats directly. but And here's another fear they have now. UKIP can harm Labour in seats where their main opponent is the Conservatives by taking votes off them. That's the main reason. Ed Bulls lost his seat, for instance.
3: Well, on that cheery note, uh, we'll hear from you again next week.
0: This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand
1: Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie.
3: And I'm John. And we host Skyline's, the City Metric podcast, where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps, and the human world.
1: Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city, and we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado Perez,
3: and Neil Codlin, keyboard player from Sway, because I'm nearly cool now.
1: Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And we're joined by Emily Witt, author of Future Sex, who is here all the way from um, Trump's America, sorry, uh, to talk about the book. Just explain to us in a kind of, what's your, when you say what you wrote the book about, what do you say to people?
2: The really short answer is I say it's a book about what to do with your sexual freedom, if you have it. Um, (laughs) And the slightly longer answer is I was... I wanted to write a book that examined a shift that had happened in America demographically, where people were getting married later or not at all, technologically, where we had the internet now and new ways of finding communities and and meeting people and socially a country with greater tolerance and interest and in, for a diversity of sexual identifications and orientations, and how all of that had shifted our sexual landscape in the past 20 odd years
1: and do you think that the sexual landscape has changed more for women i mean you write this in a quite personal tone but i mean that you know that gap now before you kind of settle down before you have children before you're kind of you know you you have those kind of economic burdens or i'm sure they're pleasures to having children but that's that's something that's particularly affected women's sex lives hasn't it
2: yeah there's just much less consensus about what a woman's sexual freedom is supposed to look like with a man you have an archetype of the bachelor you have a whole vocabulary of scoring and all of this you know you know magazines and television shows devoted to the life of the avid sexually avid single man and with women it's just a much more confusing um picture there just isn't there's a lot of conflicting messages about how you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to want, and um, so I wanted to try to tell a story of what female sexual freedom can be.
1: Well, let's talk about porn. I mean, you have a really interesting chapter where you go to Kink's weird like castle that they have in San Francisco with the where they film the public disgrace series, which is this one where people basically uh, come and watch in the audience and they kind of sort of slap and spit on the female performers. Uh, I thought that was. I mean, you preface that with a kind of, that argument that's been a a big line running through feminism. I thought one of the things you said was really interesting, that we're we're used to saying that the anti-porn feminists lost, but you don't quite think that's the full story. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah,
2: because I had never watched porn. I just didn't think it was for me. But I also had this vague idea of it in the back of my mind as something that was bad for women um, or misogynistic and so what I kind of realized is yeah the the anti-porn feminist movement was a dead end in the sense that they never successfully overrode the first amendment to ban any kind of pornography and also um, they ran into a dead end in that they could never articulate what a feminist sex would look like with any kind of specificity but I still think that if for, for me as a person raised in a liberal family, that was the trepidation around porn and the um, worry about it was expressed in feminist terms, not in Christian or religious morality terms. You know, it was, the reason that it was kind of worrisome is was always what it meant, um, mm. if it presented a, a picture of violence against women or where women had no agency that was then projected out into the world and made real.
3: Um, in the book, you sort of go on a journey of discovery. It's a very cliched phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway. You you talk to people who work in, in the industry. Would you say that your views about it uh, had changed or would you say that, yeah, how would you say you feel about it now having gone through the book as it were?
2: My views changed... Profoundly, um, first just by going to really what was the worst nightmare of an anti-porn feminist Mm -hmm. and this shoot Public Disgrace at Kink. And the interesting thing about it to me was that this extreme porn was directed by women. And they told me why they were there, and I found the reasons really compelling. Um, You know, one woman said, well, you know, your whole life you're taught to fear. Um, As a woman, you're taught to be scared to go home at night. You're really well-versed in all the horrible things that are always looming that might happen to you. And for her, it was empowering to kind of, like, create a situation where she was empowered like living the worst thing that could happen, and and but where she had control and could stop and start it, and um, where she was really the center figure of the all this this whole fantasy had been enacted around her, and she got to kind of be in it. Um, so for her, that extremity represented a kind of catharsis, and that was interesting to me. Um, you know, there was also a, a realization I had that the fact that this existed actually spoke to the power of its own taboo. Um, mm. You know, I I don't think that this particular porn actually could exist without feminism because it was feminism that made it that articulated everything about it that made it like a. a so there crazy, were guys there who
1: were. Yeah, I, I think you really interesting how you describe this. So there's there are guys there who are alternating between like shouting stuff that I can't say because of our um are value, highly valued uh, iTunes clean rating uh, at women but you know and, and slapping them and spitting on them and then kind of then kind of snapping out of that when the filming stops and feeling and sounding quite kind of ashamed
2: yeah saying I'm a, I'll take you to lunch with my mother you yeah, I'm sorry
1: I just think that uh, the whole argument about and which you go into a bit about this idea about you know feminists are essentially accusing women in porn of false consciousness saying well actually you don't know that this is harming you I just find that slightly complicated now because I, I have always thought that the way that the really extreme porn you know these sort of post-game interviews where they do so they were like hey you know what was it like being fisted and they got it was amazing being fisted I really enjoyed it Mm. that my worry about that is though that i feel that's a much more complicated thing to be joyful about in light of um all the allegations against someone like
2: james dean for example sure um yeah james dean the porn actor who was accused of sexual assault um and who worked a lot with kink and was immediately fired to their credit. Um, mm. But, yeah, it, it is it is complicated, and it is, um, I don't know, I guess the thing when that happened, and maybe this is kind of, I'll be called out on this a little bit, but, you know, that kind of sexual harassment happens at any job, and actually in porn, you You know, he got fired right away. At a lot of jobs, Mm. you get to keep working. So there's a sense that, I don't know, it it shouldn't happen in porn because they should be more conscious about consent than other communities because they have to have those conversations all the time, but...
1: I think it's a really complicated one, isn't it? Because you're partly saying this is a workplace in which things that just don't happen and certainly doesn't happen in the new statesman office. Conversations like, you know, about people's boundaries are mm-hmm. happening. But you're right in the way that there is actually... I think we can point to any number of well. Like Donald Trump, someone who openly boasted about right. sexual harassment and has received, you know, zero consequences in their, in their career at all.
2: Well, and that was what was interesting. You know, when the Trump thing happened, I, I thought a lot about that because it, what he was describing literally echoed this Mm. fantasy that I had been you know I'd seen this porn shoot that was what they were that was a fantasy they were proposing was grabbing a woman in public and it was kind of much scarier that for him to say that and this idea of the locker room you know I the porn there was something more at least in the porn, it was all seen as wicked and horrible, mm. but it was worse to have a presidential candidate present it as normal, and the action of an upstanding citizen um that was more terrifying, and you know the porn definitely did not encourage Donald Trump to do that, if anything. The porn, you know, it's not like Donald Trump could ever go up and, and talk about that porn and be applauded in society for watching it, even though <laughs> it is a new just, and horrifying tweet at you know, 3am. His version of it is much scarier to me than kink.com's. Mm.
3: Yeah. Um, one of the elements of whether or not an industry is progressive, some people would argue, is if you can keep doing it when you're old. Well, I think the person I was most struck by, actually not in the chapter about porn, was Enid, who feels kind of weirdly like a character from the novels of the type of uh from her clients is that the right word edith do you mean, is I this mean edith. Enid.
1: oh enid sorry yeah. okay
3: um and the odd thing is she probably couldn't do that if she was old right that's that's not a freedom that you can't uh, there aren't any as far as i know webcam girls in their 40s or 50s right oh
2: there definitely are yeah. <laughs>
3: this is revealing your lack of knowledge of yeah. the webcam scene.
1: No,
2: you? Um, I, you know, it was actually surprising. Well, a couple of things on that note. Um, first of all, the, the porn search term most commonly searched by men in their... 60s and above is granny porn. <laughs> so mm. not because they want grannies, but because they want somebody their own age.
1: That really, I know that shouldn't be that, should show, really, that really cheers me yeah. up, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, and and it's also one of the reasons that MILF, I think, is such a popular search term and always tops the list. Um, not because people have mom fantasies, but because that's porn shorthand for a woman over 30. Um, so I actually, you know, it surprises me. It's not as uh, you know, for a lot of men, I think they don't feel great about fantasizing about an 18-year-old. On the other hand, a lot of men do, so... Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I was surprised in the live webcam. We don't command the same audiences, but there were um, a lot of women, not a lot fewer, but there were women that did have... were on there enough that clearly it was... um benefit, you know, working for them in some way. Um, and they were not, uh, Hot, newbile, young. <laughs> women. I think that's
1: really interesting because that's also an economic point, I guess, as well. In the sense that when tube sites became popular and free clips and kind of stuff like that, right, that that it, there was just I think this is you know a theme that runs through the book is this kind of huge abundance, this like r- ridiculous amount of choice that no other generation has ever had. So the kind of economic response to that is to kind of become a become a niche, right? It's to it's to you know you're the kind of vinyl of porn.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, but, I, I mean,
1: did, did anything else kind of strike you about... Did you learn anything else in a sort of political or economic terms about about sex that you were surprised by when you were researching this?
2: Well, when I was... The live webcam thing was really um, the chapter where I met people from the widest range of economic backgrounds, so a lot of people that didn't go to college and um, who were doing the thing for money... Um, it spoke a lot to the economic situation in, in the US right now. First of all, a lot of people were caring for relatives who had health problems. Um, and this was the sexuality that was available to them when they'd had to move back to a small town where there were no other people their age or everybody's married or something. So there's a little bit of that. There were people that, um, you know, were trying to you don't really make a lot of money. It's kind of very few people actually make money, but the promise was a job that where you weren't just kind of this corporate drone. And, and so for some of the younger people, especially doing a crazy sex show was more, um, human to them than going and working at Starbucks, um, where they had to conform to this customer service personality. Um, And, yeah, and I met a lot of, it just really, I just met a lot of people who had really bad medical debt, or they had, they really wanted to go to college, but they just didn't have the money. And so there was a lot of kind of ambitious, clever people that were just dealing with difficult economic circumstances, and this was a sort of stopgap solution for them.
1: Um, My final question is really, were people's sex lives more or less weird than you expected? Did your your view of humanity change by talking to people about stuff that was very intimate and personal?
2: I mean, really more my view of myself changed and how... I I didn't know I was so conservative um, in the sense that I just had judged i guess you know for example people who are in open relationships i thought of that as kind of a naive self-destructive thing to pursue and that it never worked out and you know i just had all these dumb um ideas that were not based in my empirical experience and and this sense that that people who pursued avid sexual experimentation were all kind of like crazy or I, I don't know it's judgmental and then when I got out there it, it all made a lot of sense to me and seemed actually highly rational <laughs> thing to do and I was embarrassed at my own closed-mindedness so things that were supposed to be weird actually turned out to feel really not weird that was the surprise.
1: Well thank you very much for joining us that was Emily Witt and uh, your book Future Sex is um, available to purchase now.
3: Presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by The Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.